Well, there's nothing like standing on glass and hoping that it will keep you from falling to your death. A couple of years ago, I got to travel with Brooke to a national certified child life specialist conference in Chicago, Illinois, where she was representing the University of New Mexico Children's Hospital. I got to attend a conference as her plus one, and so while she was at the conference, I got to go do things in Chicago that were exciting and fun, but one of the things we did together was one of the most touristy things you can do in Chicago. We went to what is now called the Willis Tower, formerly known as the Sears Tower, where terrifyingly they have built on the 103rd floor a glass box called a sky deck that goes out from the building where you can stand on glass, only seeing what will probably be your death if it doesn't hold you up. Before stepping out on the ledge, a lot of thoughts go into your mind. Fear, hope, excitement, fear, a lot of things, fear, on and on. But somehow, for decades, people have had complete trust in a thick piece of glass. Glass that is normally so fickle and breakable, yet somehow, 103 stories up, in Chicago's wind, all 210 pounds of me trusted in a glass floor. I know that some of you have a hard time with trust, especially when it comes to your spiritual pursuit of God. You have a hard time of trusting the Lord with your life. Now, probably this has happened because you have failed others, or others have failed you. The man has let you down, or even a man has left you. Whatever your experience, whatever your untrusting experience might be, a question might be, to what extent are you placing that lack of trust on God? Maybe put another way, to what extent do you not trust God? God's own spirit, through his very word, says that God is completely trustworthy. Completely trustworthy for you to follow him. To give your life over to him. To believe in him and to hope for his will and work to be very good. If that's a good sermon, just turn it up on whatever (laughs) phone that might be. It's fine. Now, if you've been with us for several weeks or months, you've seen time and time again that Jesus is and was very powerful. He was and is very good. He was and is very authoritative over everything that he might come across. He's all those things towards disease. He's all those things towards unbelief. He's all those things towards nature and weather. But there's something still lurking around that our texts now approach. There's, there's this dark cloud that seems to be covering the earth that Jesus will now approach with the same authority and power as he did with the wind and as he did toward a leper. Our passage this morning will show us and it will tell us about the power that Jesus has over pure evil. Pure evil. The the supernatural, if you will. Wickedness, haunting creatures. Jesus is powerful over them too. So my hope this morning is that God's word would fill you and remind you to trust in Jesus, who is not afraid of anything and is also at the same time authoritative over everything. My hope is that you'll trust him to deliver you from sin, from evil, from despair, by watching how he encounters pure evil altogether, and that you would trust him to keep you secure and in his good grip of grace. And if you do, 
I think if you pursue him like this, I, I believe that you will find total contentment in who he is, that you will delight in him rather than fear evil, that you will delight in Jesus rather than not trusting him to have full authority over your life. And as we look at our text, I think there are two things that really rise to the top of this text. So as you just see it unfold, I think there are two main things that we can gather from this text. And the first one, if you're using an outline from the back of your bulletin, the first one is I hope that you understand the portrayal that this text has is both haunting and chaotic. That evil here is shown to us as haunting and chaotic. I want you to look at verse 28 of this passage. It says, and when he came to the other side, to the country of Gardenas, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. Jesus, we, we see this picking up right where uh, Matthew has the text leave off in the passage just before it. We see that Jesus and some of the followers that he had with him now arrived at the east side of the Sea of Galilee. So if you remember, the Sea of Galilee might be about the same size in territory as the town of Enid, and they've arrived on the east side of town, if you would, to an area called Gedarnitz. Now, if you're new to the scriptures, there there are some of the books in the scriptures called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if you read them, you'll start noticing that three of those four kind of are similar together. They They have stories that don't repeat each other, but they have stories that are like the other stories around them. Those are called the synoptic Gospels, the synoptic Gospels, where they they provide for us They're not telling different stories or more strange stories or less stories, but they're telling similar angles to the same story of Jesus for us to understand and hold on to. So you might see this case, maybe you have a Bible with a footnote or tiny little words at the bottom where you see that that Matthew chapter 8 is not the only time where it talks about Jesus approaching or being approached by a man who is demon-possessed. We see this played out in Mark chapter 5 verses 1 through 20, where Mark will emphasize Uh, in graphic long form, the the demon's actual power. So he's kind of flexing on what this demon looked like in the same story. Matthew is portraying just the powerful word of Christ here. Luke, in Luke chapter 8, will be emphasizing a reaction, the the long form reaction of the people who saw all of this happen and frankly were freaked out. Now I say all that because if you see some of these other passages in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll notice that the location that they're at appears to be pretty different. There's a different town, which you might be tempted, and don't be tempted, you might be tempted, do any of these guys know what they're talking about? Can we really trust in the Bible here? Matthew is saying this, Mark and Luke are saying this, is one of them wrong, or all of them wrong, are they just making stuff up, trying to highlight some cool things for us? Is this just another Halloween movie for us to partake in? I think just to put you at ease, not saying that anyone is freaking out, and I know that some of you are saying, I don't care, but just to put you at ease, when Matthew is talking about this location, he's talking in general. Like if there were a brush fire in Carrier, Oklahoma, and you're telling someone about it in Austin, Texas, you might say, it's in the Enid area. And they would go, oh, okay, I know where Enid is. Or you might say, northwest Oklahoma. And then these other guys are saying, oh, it's in Carrier, Oklahoma. And someone in this area might go, I know exactly where that is, northwest of Enid, Oklahoma. So he's saying, that Matthew is saying that Jesus arrived from a boat and is immediately encountered by a haunting, evil demon. One of the things that this shows us is that there are demons immediately presented in Jesus' own life where we can gain from this that demons are real. Demonic forces are real. They're not just made up. They're not just something in books or in movies, but they are real things. So don't be caught up in ignoring 
a large and fierce battle that is at play here. One of the things that you have to understand is that there is more than meets the eye in our lives or in our world. Job very vividly, so Job is a, is a book of the Bible if you're not used to it, Job very vividly portrays this battle, cosmic royale between God and Satan that's happening behind the scenes. And, and so if he's to unfold for Job of what's really going on, and he does in a little bit, Job then sees that there is something at play here that is even deeper and darker than he even realizes. Job portrays in graphic detail this battle between Satan, who wants to dethrone God, who defames God at every ounce he can gather, and he wants to bring down God, whose glory shines like a celestial robe, a God who loves and lifts up particular people through his own Messiah. So there is a lot going on here that even meets the eye, yet we see this significant account of a demon-possessed man, it says here in our text. And what that means is a man who would be filled by fallen angels. That's what a demon is. An angel who used to be in the heavens worshiping the Lord out of uh, defamation and pride and self-centeredness, hated God and was thrown out of the heavens and now is encapsulating this person. The demonic forces at play in this man are filling him. This Greek word, demon-possessed, conveys these men were potently full and controlled by destructive demonic actions. And this was not out of the blue. These men would have hovered and they would have lived in what the text says is tombs. These tombs that the text is talking about would be what we would see as modern caves. They'd be outside of the town, but they were living there probably because they were ostracized away from everyone else, but probably because they could do evil things there that they couldn't do it in the middle of town. And they were blocking trade. They were blocking commerce. No one could pass them by. So you could see them. If there were tombs on North Van Buren, everyone would avoid them because that's where the demon-possessed people lived. We see, though, not just that there were demons there. We also are given portrayals of what their character looks like. Their demons are awful and tyrannical. Now, a lot of you might be used to comic books or movies that I think brilliantly portray what a demonic uh, figure or personality would look like in the Batman's version of the Joker, where the Joker is brilliant, and the Joker is awful, and he does not want to do anything except to continually destruct whatever is in front of him, and that is exactly what this demon-possessed person does. I want you to turn to the book of Mark, the book of Mark, chapter 5, just one book to your right, we see in our passage, in Matthew chapter 8, we see that the demon-possessed man was described as so fierce. So fierce. But look at how Mark describes him. Mark chapter 5, verse 3. This man lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Or if you might turn over to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, we see another portrayal of this same demon-possessed man. Luke chapter 8, verse 27. Same story, same area. When Jesus had stepped out on the land, there met him, a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. 
So we see here that this is not just someone who is suffering from a mental illness. This is not just someone who had a bad day or needed more rest. This is, this is a demon-possessed man who not even chains could hold down. We need to understand what is approaching Jesus. Haunting, demonic power. But it's amazing what this demon cries out. Uh, look there in the text. Look there in verse 29. The demon-possessed man, it says, cried out, What have you to do with us? Or if you're using the NIV, what do you want with us? But it wasn't just a question. These these demon-possessed men would have been crying out. These demonic forces would have been yelling at the Messiah. They were crying out. They were expressively full of hatred, wailing out. They didn't just say, what have you to do with us? Look there in chapter 8, verse 29. What have you to do with us, O Son of God? The demons had an accurate portrayal of Christology. They were yelling out, calling out that Jesus was not just a person who was approaching them as some other people would have before, but they were titling him the very Son of God. One of the most exalted, glorious titles that is ever applied to Jesus is the Son of God. It's a divine name. It calls attention to him as divine, used in the scriptures to express both wonder and by the demon's mockery, people who would be normally speechless and astonished at seeing God incarnate perform or speak and be Yahweh to them, they would speak out like Nathaniel in John chapter 1 where they said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are King. Or Peter's confession in Matthew chapter 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He saw Jesus as divine and then John, when he wrote his gospel, he would cry out, you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. The reason why he wrote down his words is so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And there are other places in Scripture where Jesus is recognized with that same divine power, that same sonship, the very Son of God. But there's also a haunting place where it's recognized as well. Turn over to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. If you remember, one of the first things that Matthew portrays in Jesus' ministry is actually overcoming the satanic words of the devil, where we see in Matthew chapter 4, verse 3, and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. This is Satan himself. These are the demons themselves. And then it says in verse 5 of chapter 4, then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. We need to recognize what is going on here. It is much bigger than we might just assume. And there is much more going on here than Jesus just being confronted by someone who seemed to be possessed. We are seeing Jesus being confronted by an accurate and true and haunting person, a demon. And they see his nature. They understand his holiness. They cry out through their evil mouths, through their jealous hearts, through their self-centered aims. They mockingly call him the Son of God. And that, that sets the table for us when we see in Matthew chapter 8, verse 29. What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? This passage portrays demons as not just some guys who are mentally sick. They're demonically controlled. They're they're all looking at Jesus and basically yelling at him. And their, their hatred of him knows no limits. Now, as an aside from this, you must know what they know. 
you must recognize what they too recognize. They, they recognize Jesus as the king. They recognize Jesus as the Messiah. They recognize Jesus as God incarnate. They would have seen him before in the heavens before they rebelled. They know exactly who they're looking at. The very son of God. But they do not serve him. His aim is not their aim. His desire is not their desire. And you just have to ask yourself, just as an aside here, is there any difference between your faith and theirs? You might know him for what he factually is, but do you adore him for who he has always been? Do you know but don't believe? Friend, knowing God isn't good enough. Knowing these things about him isn't good enough. Just having... The most intense understanding of systematic theology isn't good enough. Believing he's mighty isn't enough. James chapter 2 says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe. And they shudder at who he is. Friend, knowing God isn't good, but believing in him is the only thing that actually separates you from a demon. It's a haunting portrayal, isn't it? Another thing that we see here in just this chaotic haunting vision that's in front of us, that the demons believe Jesus' presence actually means that they've got tormenting coming for them. They don't just see him and go, man, what are we dealing with? We've got to get past this guy, or maybe we need to go back in our caves and avoid him because he's a powerful person. They think that when Jesus shows up, that their time is over, because they know that there is this battle at the end, this, this occurrence at the end where God will finally and permanently crush evil. Right now, it seems like evil is lingering around the earth or having its heyday, and it certainly is, but there is a time where evil will be shut out, will be cast out, where it seems like a, like a dragon is being thrown into an eternal fire, and they see him coming, and they go, surely the time isn't now. They thought they'd have more time. Our passage proves that within evil is a fear of justice happening. Darkness despises the light, but it mostly fears it. Darkness always fears the light. Now, I don't do, I don't, well, I guess I kind of do. I don't like Halloween as like a holiday. Like, I like the 4th of July and Easter. Why? Because it's happy. You know, Halloween is terrifying. Like, why do you want to get dressed up and scare each other to death? Like, do you want to go to a haunted house? No. I really, why, why would I go to a haunted house? I, I like my house because there's no ghosts or goblins there. Yeah, fun hater up here. I know, I know. <laughs> I don't like being scared, but one of the things that we remember, at least around the Halloween, <laughs> Halloween season, is that whenever we see vampires portrayed in movies or books, what is the one thing that they fear? What's the one thing that evil fears? The light. What's the one thing that the demons fear? The light being present in their eyes. They think that they're going to die now and be done with because the light has become present in their lives. J.C. Ryle says, Mighty as demons are, there is still one mightier still. Clearly set is their desire to do harm in the world, yet demons can only work by permission. Basically, these demons, or these fallen angels, who were here before you and me, before God created the earth, they were in a battle against him. And there, according to the Bible, there was this mighty, epic, celestial battle between the highest, mightiest angel known to us as Satan or Lucifer, where he hated God, he rebelled against God, and he and his followers, known to us as demons, were thrown out of God's presence. And they were promised that there would be a day when they would be shut out. And since then, they've been wanting nothing more than to wreak havoc 
on everything God made and loves. But they know that there's an end in sight. They know that they're not more powerful than God. They know that they're not sovereign or in control. They know that they will soon be crushed. And so when the demons, which we would see in other accounts, when one of them was talking, he was speaking on behalf of what he would call thousands of other demons, they know that when they see Jesus, he is going to come and judge them. And so they ask him a question. They call out to him with a request. They know that he's about to drive them out of the man and they just want more time. And so Matthew, if you will, if you see it like a movie, Matthew, in verse 29 to verse 23, he almost shifts the camera angle to where you see these demons now viewing pigs from afar. And they say, if you're going to shut us out, at least give us the pigs so we can dwell in them. In some ways, you might think of this as a complete mockery of what God deems unclean. If you call it unclean, these pigs, we want to go make it more unclean. Or the only things that they like to sit in are things that are unclean all around them. Look at verse 30 of our text. And now a herd of many pigs were, was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him. There are some of you we have to recognize that do not believe in the absolute control of Jesus over all things. There are some of you that still find yourself within the limits of God doesn't fully have control over every single thing in life. These demons were always aiming to torture people. They were always aiming to possess people. They were always aiming to damage the things that God loved, but they were entirely under Jesus' control. And there are some of us, some of you, who don't believe that God has absolute, all-encompassing, total sovereignty over everything, over everything. And if that's your view of God, you've got to realize that even demons have a higher view of God than you. Demons are more powerful than you. They're more powerful than the created creatures called humans or animals. They, they are able to be places that we're not able to be. They're able to know things that our minds just have a limit with, yet they ask permission from God to go do more evil. Friends, some of this on the flip side, we see the haunting nature of evil, but on the flip side, we see the, the beautiful control that God has over everything, the absolute trust that we can place in God's hands, recognizing that even evil is with under his grip, within his grip. Evil's power is limited because Jesus's power is not. Can you imagine a reality where that's just not the case? Can you imagine the reality where, where evil here actually has a leg up or even equity between a holy God who is sovereign over all things? Can you imagine if God isn't completely, absolute, just 99% sovereign, where evil has 1% sovereignty here? He would not be one to trust in. He, he would not be one to give yourselves over to. You can see how they were convinced in their own mind that, that they would want to go against the heavens. Yet this one little word gives us a beautiful picture of who Jesus is here. We see here in this passage in between Verses 30 and 31, we see here that there is a climax to this story. These demons approached the incarnate God, whom all things were made through, and they begged for swine. And one little word was his response. Look at the text. One little word in verse 32. He turned to them and said to them, one word, go. In an instant, they went out. One little word, hagapeget. One little word, most 
fierce, more powerful, most creative creatures that consume a man are out. They asked for permission and he told them to get out. What a moment. This physical body would have been healed. Uh, We see in the past where he would have healed a leper. In an instant, a body was healed. In an instant, a social outcast was brought in. In an instant, a viral infection infecting a lady was overcome. In an instant, God calmed a storm. And now, here in an instant, God conquered the supernatural. Friends, the question is easy. Why can we place our trust in Christ? Now, one side, the flip side is, who in the world else will we place our trust in? But also, do you see the power of the one you are called to put your trust in? He is completely sovereign over all, but in this man's case, he is very, very good. His very words project power. One little word projects power. Turn to the book of Hebrews. Turn over several books to the book of Hebrews. We see God's powerful words at work. Turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. Fewer pages are turning. You can use the table of contents. It's totally fine. You can take your time. Turn to the book of Hebrews where we see the power of God's word. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then look at verse 8. And but the Son, but of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprighteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oils of gladness beyond your companions. There is a spiritual battle for sure, but it is clearly one-sided. What we see here, if you're, if you're thinking about this kind of doctrinally or systematically, what we see here is, is what is called the, uh, the omnipotence of God, where God is all-powerful, where there is nothing he isn't able to do. It, it means that God is in total control of himself and his creation. Anytime I feel like I am not in power, it's because I feel like something is slipping away from me, right? I recognize how little control I have over all of my life, yet that is the opposite of who he is. He is omnipotent in his being. Nothing is too hard or impossible for him. He does all and is able to do anything that he wills and desires. And it was his will at this time for one little word to mean something. Go. And how powerful it was. You'll see this again and again in the scriptures. And that's why you can completely trust in Jesus with your whole life. To know who he is as the Savior. To go to him as the Savior. To ascend to no one else or nothing else. But just to ascend to him as the one who can save you. And then to trust him completely with your life. Friend, if you do not trust in Jesus, you need to know that you can. You need to know that the same power that spoke this demon out of this person is the same person that you can trust your life to to save your life from the same despair that would face this demon. To, to save your life from the agony of your own sin. To save your life from the, from the consequences of your own sin. From the same 
thing that you can save yourself from through the gift of Christ, of what the wrath was placed soon on his shoulders. You can trust in Jesus because he is powerful and authoritative and good. Friend, if you don't know him, I hope you do, and you need to, and you can turn to the same one who this man was running up to. We also see, secondly, that the cost of evil is staggering. We see how haunting some things are. We see how chaotic things are. But we also see that the cost of evil is staggering. See, the cost of evil is staggering here. There's a tremendous cost that comes with this exorcism. Uh, Look again in Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, verses 32 through 34. I'll read it for you. Matthew chapter 8, verses 32 through 34. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled. And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. Think about what they were going to do. Came out to meet him, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. There is a tremendous cost of evil, and it's staggering. Pigs, through fierce demonic possessions, stampeded to their death. And you have to think about the economic effect that this would have on their owners, that this would have on their herdsmen. Of course, they would have gone in and told the town because they needed other people to know of what happened. They didn't just lose these pigs. They didn't just drown these pigs. Demonic forces embedded themselves in these pigs, and they stampeded into the water. They lost money. And these town people, when hearing possibly feared him because he stirred up their way of living. Things were clearly so intense that they just couldn't handle it and they asked him to leave. They were terrified of what was happening here. They don't really know what's happening outside of that town, but here now comes this man inside the town and they said, get out, please. Whatever is going on out there, we do not want it in here because it would have completely changed the trajectory of their life. We recognize that there is a tremendous cost that comes with this exorcism and we recognize that Jesus' power in his mercy is actually costly. We recognize that this isn't just costly for them economically, but when we think of Jesus' power, it is actually very costly too. Heaven's hope is actually in the world's waste. If you think about it, they're just, they just witnessed an exorcism. And they were more concerned with money and a way of living than just wanting to follow him. And the application here is clear. Do you continually recognize the glory and the power of God as something against your personal desire? Would you be willing to give up anything to enjoy his pure power? Would you give up anything to follow him? Would you give up anything to bow down? Is there anything of yourself that you wouldn't let leave your grip? Worshiping Jesus, we see regularly in this section of Matthew, is actually very costly. Uh, One of the lessons that we have here is that people are actually more important than possessions. This man's life was more important than a thousand pigs. You see the compassion here of Jesus. He came to the man. Out of compassion, he exercised demons. Out of compassion, he showed the value of a soul. If the, if the cost of discipleship, if the cost of following Jesus somehow becomes offensive, like it did with these people in this town, if the cost of following Jesus actually does offend you, you need to realize the final cost for defeating evil would not be by the, per, by the death of imperfect animals, but in the death of the perfect man, 
present before them Jesus himself. The herdsmen suffered the loss for the healing of the demonics. But Jesus would soon suffer for his people way more. Soon he would bear their sins, the people who would put him on the cross. Soon he would take on the very wrath of God as punishment on the cross. And that is why you can go to him in faith, not blindly or not in vain, but you can go to him in faith because he has paid the cost for your sins. You're not just following someone. You're completely putting your full weight in his hands because the full weight of God's wrath was placed on his body. And past that, even past his death, it was Jesus who not only died, but rose again to liberate us from the grip of sin. Uh, We look at things like like this demon-possessed man, and it is frightening, but we know that it's not final. Friend, if you trust in Jesus, he will exercise his power over sin on your behalf. The healing of the demon man is a taste of the healing that he brings to all who suffer from this evil. We see God's power on display. We see the cost of following God on display. In conclusion, my maternal grandma died in 2008 at the age of 87. She was spectacular in many ways, but she was uh, one of the first, and part of that uh, I'm thankful for, she was one of the first persons to give me a book by Charles Spurgeon in 2006. She went through a lot in her life. She endured a lot in her life, yet one of her favorite songs was A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And we sang it at her funeral where I was allowed to preach. God carried her through a lot of torment. A harsh, unbelieving husband for many years. A lonely last 25 years ridden by divorce. Children and possibly grandchildren who caused her a lot of anguish. But she loved, not me, but she loved a mighty fortress is our God. God to her was her bulwark. He was her fort because he never changed. Written over 500 years ago, this song in many ways was the peak of pure thinking of the giant of our faith, Martin Luther. He was, a, he was a troubled man. He was a brilliant man. He was a hurt man. He was an aggressive, though, defender of Christ and Christ's words. Though he was belittled and ridiculed and persecuted by the highest authority that our world has ever known, he wrote extensively about Satan's cloud of influence around his life. Satan, he viewed tormenting him. Satan was against him. Satan caused others to hate God's very word. Yet still, Luther prevailed by standing for God's very word, God's very truth. He stood for what the Bible says about God and Christ and his redemption on the cross. Yet Luther was still tormented on this life. Evil seemed to continually be against him, but on a dark night, after a cardinal in the Catholic tradition sentenced him to despair, He wrote the following, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. That little word. That little word that cripples sin, that breaks the bondage of evil, that ruins the savageness of Satan, we see here in our text today that it was the permission of Christ which evil sought. But Luther went on to complete the triumphant anthem. It was a word that not only encouraged him, but finished 
Satan off. And it was the word incarnate where a Messiah was given who would give hope to him. That little word above all earthly powers, he says, no thanks to them abideth. His spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindreds go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. For his kingdom is forever. Friend, I don't know what you trust in. And I don't know what you think that will help you with. But if you are ever skeptical of God's complete love and power in your life, be remembered, be reminded that you can trust in Jesus to deliver you from the ravageness of sin and evil and despair and to keep you secure eternally. And may we continue to delight in him and fear not evil because of one little word. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we are grateful that you have spoken to us, that you have spoken to us by the prophets, but that you have now spoken to us by your Son. God, we pray that you would cause us to trust him, to depend on him, to love him, to delight in him. Oh Lord, may we trust you. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.